Okay, we now have um, our prayer time. And every time we pray, we always read a Bible passage before we do, so that we're praying in line with God's Word. Now today, because our reading, our main reading is quite long, we've got Genesis 48 to 50, what we're going to do is we'll read Genesis 48 to inform our prayers, and then we'll read Genesis 49 to 50 in a moment for our main Bible reading. So I'll read through Genesis 48 and take from that a number of points that we can pray for ourselves. Genesis 48 says this. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I'll make you fruitful and multiply you, and I'll make of you a company of people, and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brother in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. And the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so they could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand, towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life along to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's hand, head to Manasseh's head, and Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim 
and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Well, we now have our main Bible reading and we pick it up at the start of Genesis 49. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob, Jacob, and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that his resting place was good, and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear, and became a servant at forced labour. Dan shall judge his people, as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way of a viper by the path, that bites the horse's heels, so his riders falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad but he shall raid at their heels. Ashes' food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose, that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will keep you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, 
blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your Father, are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills, may they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and at evening, evening dividing the spoil. All these, the twelve tribes of Israel, this is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, in the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him for seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favour in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, my father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he has made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him he went up, with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Etad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father for seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abal Mitzriam. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah, at the east of Mamre which Abraham brought with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers, and all who come up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us, and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. 
And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived for 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, to the land that he swore to Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being a hundred and ten years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in, put in a coffin in Egypt. Well, in a minute we're going to have a look at that passage, but before we do, let me just mention a few things. The first is, there'll be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of the things we've been thinking about this morning. So I mention that now so you know it's coming up, and you can be thinking what questions you might ask. Another thing to mention is, in your service sheet, which you received on your way in, there's a sermon outline, which... Um, you can use if it's helpful, but ignore if not. And finally, let me pray. Let's ask God to help us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for time spent reflecting on your word. We thank you how we've seen your promises from Genesis 12 uh, be fulfilled in Genesis 48 to 50. We thank you for the remarkable ways in which you've used Joseph to bring about your plan and purpose and the salvation of any people. And as we reflect on these things, might we continue to see how you work for the good of your people now through the Son, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In the first nine verses of Ezekiel 19, it speaks of the princes of Israel. Their mother is a lioness, which makes them lion cubs. Now the first cub became a young lion, and he learned to catch prey. So far, so very much what we might expect. But then comes the negative. This cub acquired the taste of human flesh. And so the nations gathered together and they caught the lion who would end up in an Egyptian zoo. When the mother of the lion realises her first cub isn't coming back, she makes one of her other cubs a young lion. Once again, the second cub learned to catch prey. 
But his taste for human flesh was far worse than the first. Not only did he devour men, but their widows also. And so the nations rose up against this lion, and it too was caught. This time it would be taken to a zoo in Babylon. Now what we see from this scene is the lion is among the many imageries that describe what Israel is like in the Bible. However, we're probably more accustomed of the, um, to the lion imagery being used positively. So do you remember in Revelation 5? In that passage, there's no one found worthy to open the scroll. That is until the lion of the tribe of Judah steps forward. He is able to open the scroll and bring into fulfilment God's plan. What's interesting is this. If you do a quick survey of references to lions in the Bible, you find it's the positive imagery that's quite sparse. In fact, there's only one mention of the lion of the tribe of Judah in the whole of the Bible. And that's the one found in Revelation 5 verse 5. And yet it's a phrase that I think we're fairly familiar with, despite its rarity. Now why the imagery of the lion works so well is because the lion is difficult to tame. That's what we have in Ezekiel 19. Once the lion has a taste for human flesh, it must be stopped. So the imagery of a lion has this flexibility. On the one hand it can be positive. From the point of view of the lion being the fiercest of beasts, he will rule. No one can challenge his rule. Here the emphasis on, is on the consistency of the rule. But on the other hand, the lion can convey negatively that a people who are rebellious and mistreat those that God has told them to care for will be stopped when God raises other nations to bring an end to their bloodthirst. So there's two imageries. The question is, which imagery will prevail? Well, this morning we are coming to the end of our series of the book of Genesis. And some people have suggested that the end of Genesis is a bit of an anticlimax. It's the previous passages that hold the drama. Joseph's brother brothers, they travel to Egypt and unaware bow down before Joseph and in doing so fulfil the dream that had been their reason for selling him in the first place. Then there's Joseph's big reveal and the realisation that Jacob's favourite son is still alive. Followed by the journey that Jacob takes to Egypt where he's reunited with his favourite son. In contrast, these last few chapters, well, they just seem to record the death of Jacob and the death of Joseph. But then if we think Genesis 48-50 to lacks in drama, 
then maybe it's because we've misunderstood the purpose of Genesis. Since Genesis 12, the focus has been on the promises that God made to Abraham and the blessing that go hand in hand with those promises. Jacob has spent his whole life grasping for blessings as seen in his desire for Esau's birthright and when he steals his father's blessing intended for Esau. Now as Jacob's life is coming to an end, he reflects back on the blessings he has received. First he describes the blessing he received at Luz, back in verse 3 and following. How God promised he would multiply him into a company of people and land would be given to him. Now related to this blessing, Jacob adopts Joseph's two firstborn sons as his own. In doing this, he blesses Joseph because he gives him a double portion of the inheritance which we see fulfilled in Joshua. That is, Ephraim and Manasseh will become two of the tribes of Israel. But so too Jacob is blessed. This adoption of Joseph's two sons provides Jacob with a larger family through which his descendants will multiply and through whom, God, whom God's promise is being fulfilled. Then when Jacob blesses Ephraim and Manasseh, he reveals even further how God has blessed him. He had believed Joseph to be dead. He had no hope that he would see him again. But now God has blessed Jacob. Not only has he seen Joseph, but he's also seen Joseph's offspring. Now verse 22 of chapter 48 is worth taking a moment to reflect upon. It's a verse that could quite easily be missed. Let me read from verse 21. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I, may, that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Jacob gives something to Joseph, something that he keeps back from his brothers. This isn't the first time that Jacob has behaved this way to his 12 children. Our initial thought may be that Jacob is once again favouring Joseph at the expense of his brothers. Is this another coat of many colours moment? Alternatively, is something else happening? Joseph has made his home in Egypt. When we're first introduced to Joseph, he's merely 17. There's no reason to believe that he was much older when he was sold into slavery. What memory of the promised land does Joseph have? Well, in order to impress upon Joseph the importance of the land, Jacob now gives a piece of the land to his son, the one who's most comfortable in Egypt. 
Now, if this is the purpose for it, we see it realised. Not only does Jacob insist he should be buried in Canaan, but at the end of Joseph's life, in Genesis 50, verse 24, Joseph says this, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac. Then in Genesis 49, Jacob gathers all his sons together. This immediately contrasts to his own experience as a son, where Isaac attempted to bless Esau on his own. Now it might be an interesting exercise to explore what part each tribe plays in God's purposes through the Old Testament. So just to give a few examples, Moses and Aaron and Miriam, they come from the tribe of Levi. Joshua, he's from Ephraim. Samson, he comes from Dan. Saul is from Benjamin. Isaiah comes from Judah. Jeremiah comes from Benjamin. And you'll notice as we, the further we go on, the closer we get to the exile, you find that the likes of Ezekiel and Daniel and all his friends are all from Judah. There may be some from Benjamin. We could go as far as the Apostle Paul who is from the tribe of Benjamin. Now this is far from exhaustive, and also it focuses on individuals and not the roles of the tribes as a whole. But it gets us started. But for today, we're going to focus in on the first four tribes as the most pertinent, given our limited time. So those first four tribes being Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Now in biblical times, the firstborn had a privilege and honour and status above the children that followed. Later on in Exodus, the firstborn child will be dedicated to God and they will receive double inheritance. What's interesting is this status is often inverted by God as seen already by Manasseh and Ephraim. Also we've seen it with Jacob, where he's blessed and the firstborn Esau misses out. Nevertheless, the firstborn was an honoured position. Now when Jacob talks about Reuben, he describes Reuben's status as honoured. But he takes that position away from him because he slept with Jacob's concubine. So at this point, we might expect the status of firstborn to be passed to Simeon. But Simeon and Levi, they too lose out because there are actions against Shechem. So this makes sense of the blessing to Judah. From Jacob's point of view, he's merely presenting his blessings to Judah as a surrogate firstborn, and giving him the honour as such. But then when we look at the language, it seems to go too far for merely describing him as a firstborn. And so the imagery describes how the brothers will no longer bow down to Joseph, 
but now they will bow down to Judah. It speaks of how he will triumph over his enemies. Judah is then described as a lion who catches his prey and then waits to see if anyone dare attempt to take his prey from him. Here, in contrast to Ezekiel 19, the imagery is positive. Judah will be a king and his authority will not be challenged. This is further consolidated with the imagery of the scepter never departing from Judah. Then we see how tributes come to him. This is a tribute from other nations. He will rule over other nations as well as Israel. Then verse 11 communicates the abundance that will be experienced under his rule. Let's just have a quick look at that one. Chapter 49, verse 11. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He's washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. This should bring to mind the curse of Genesis 3, where the land is no longer forthcoming. But when this king rules, the vines will be so bountiful, so much so he can afford to tie his donkey to the vine and allow it to be eaten by the donkey because there's still an abundance left. It further consolidates this imagery as it describes how the king will wash his clothes in wine because there's so much of it, still no one goes without. Now the fact that the phrase, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, only appears once in the whole Bible, might cause us to think we shouldn't pay too much attention to it. It's a question that's worth asking. Should we put too much weight upon a motif that only occurs once? However, Although the title only occurs once, it is a title that's able to encapsulate a theme that's laboured throughout the Bible, which we first see alluded to in Genesis 49, and is further built upon in 2 Samuel 7, when an insignificant, insignificant son of Jesse, from the line of Judah, is chosen by God to become king of Israel. And a promise is made to him that his descendants will always rule on his throne. It's a theme that we see fills the book of Psalms. And then comes a day when John records the first miracle of Jesus. In this miracle, there's absolutely no mention of lions. 
But the miracle brings forth an abundance of wine from a well. Which brings to mind the one from the line of Judah, whose rule will be one of abundance. Even though the line of the tribe of Judah is only mentioned in Genesis 49 and Revelation 5 verse 5. These are two bookends to a book whose content provides the detail of what that line of Judah will achieve. The fulfilment of the promises of God given to Abraham. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words that your servant Jacob spoke so many years ago and how he blessed Judah, giving him the honour of the firstborn. And we thank you as he says himself that he speaks the words that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. And as we reflect on the things that come afterwards, how you chose from the tribe of Judah a young boy called David, and through him sent your son Jesus to bring an abundance of wine and to give us a taste on earth of what the new heavens and the earth would be like. We can see the blessings promised to Abraham being fulfilled. And so we pray, Lord, that we would look forward as we anticipate on when those promises will be fulfilled in their completion in the new heavens and the new earth, when we'll dwell in safety with you. Amen. Well, I mentioned at the beginning that once we finished the sermon, we'd open it up for questions or comments. Now is your time. I say now is your time. If you don't want to ask it now, you can always ask it after the service. But it means no one else can hear the question and answer. Yes, Simon. Sure. Um, is that when we're talking about the donkey? Yeah. 
So, just to repeat the question for the recording, we made reference to Genesis 3. Could we quickly just go back to that? Okay, so if we have a quick look at uh, Genesis 49, verse 11 first. So, when Judah is king, verse 11 says, Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, He's washed his garments in wine. He's investing in the blood of grapes. Now, donkeys are a bit of a nightmare from what I understand. If you leave them anywhere, they'll eat whatever's around them. So you've got to be careful where you find them, so to speak. But this king appears to be very careless. He binds the donkey right next to his best vine. So as he leaves his donkey and goes for his drink or whatever else he's doing, the donkey's going to munch his way through his grapes. So that's the picture we've got in Genesis 49. Back in Genesis 3, we see how, because the, uh, Adam and Eve had eat, have eaten from the tree, in verse 17 of Genesis 3, And to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. For you are, the du you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So we've got these two contrasting imageries. The first one, if we go to Genesis 3 being the first one, is of man's difficult toil because the ground is not doesn't doesn't grow much as in you know you plant your food uh, you plant your plants and instead weeds grow that sort of thing and so it's not very forthcoming then you've got this second picture of things seem to grow so easily that you can be careless with where you bind your donkey, you can let them munch away at the best vines, the best grapes, because there's still more left over. Not just a little bit left over, but a bountiful amount. So much so, that if you wanted to do this, not that you probably would, you could wash your clothes in the blood from the grapes, or the, um, the juice from the grapes. So, I mean, in one sense it's ridiculous, but that's the point. It's, it's describing an abundance so much that you can do these ridiculous things like wash your white clothes in red grape juice. But the nice thing about it is it communicates, you know, obviously once you grasp it, it communicates this idea that this king is going to reverse the effects of the fall. Which is why, I mean, it's funny because I've, I've heard, is it John 2 or 3? I can't remember. The first miracle in John's Gospel is the wedding at Canaan. And I've heard many sermons on it, all weird and wonderful. Yeah, chapter, start of chapter 2, John. But I think it's quite simple. There's nothing clever going on here. 
when Jesus produces an abundance of wine from the well, he's just showing that he's the one who converts effects to the fall. He's showing that he's the king in the line of Judah. He's showing that in the new heavens and the new earth, in the messianic reign, there will be a bounty of vines because the curse will be gone. Thanks for asking the question, because it would have been nice to put all that in the sermon, but I just couldn't squeeze it all in. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes, Ricky. Interesting question. Okay, let me kind of have a go at repeating the question just so that it's got by the recording. So as we worked our way through um, Genesis, we've had this very clear, sort of black and white, um, Jacob is blessed and Esau isn't. And so we're seeing the promise go through a particular line. Then when we get to Jacob, things get a little bit more complicated he's got 12 sons and I guess in one sense we might see the promise going through Judah uh, and not through the others but at the same time we've got this quite long blessing for Joseph so how do we think about the blessing of Judah and Joseph and how they sort of compare that's roughly the question now, I think this is quite interesting because you're right, Joseph is a long blessing and I think the commentator said that it's the longest, although in the English translation it looks fairly similar. Um, but So they're on they're sort of equal footing or Joseph's slightly longer. I think the first thing to say is by the time we get to Jacob, something slightly changes. So when the promise passed from Isaac to Jacob, it was linear. So Esau doesn't get the promises. The promises just don't go through to him. But the whole thing about Israel, Jacob being called Israel, and the tribes being the tribes of Israel, means that now they branch out. So in one sense, the blessing does pass, the promise passes on to all 12 of the tribes, um, that's how the blessing will go. And so, so for example, when you get to Exodus, if Pharaoh curses the Israelites as a group of 12 tribes, he will be cursed. And that's kind of what you see played out in Exodus to fulfill Genesis 12, verse 3. 
However, we do get this, obviously, highlight of Judah as being a king and the one who the line goes through. Now, we obviously can see that fully outworked because we can see how things, how David's chosen uh, and how through David comes Jesus and who through Jesus fulfills this and all the other promises that are made. The Joseph blessing I find a bit peculiar and I read the commentary particularly on it. I must admit I didn't read the commentary on all of them but I thought I'm going to come unstuck on Joseph because I so I, I really need the commentator's help but he didn't really provide much help I don't think. So a couple of things to say you'll notice that in in most cases Jacob describes what the boys were like and how that will play out in the tribe. He describes the, the tri um, his son's history a little bit. So Reuben defiled his um, father's bed, hence his curse rather than blessing. Simeon and Le Le Levi um, did what they did to Shechem, hence their curse and not blessing. There's something similar in Joseph. It feels as you go through the blessing, a lot of it is describing Joseph's past more than his future. Um, so there's something there. I guess things are further complicated because Joseph, strictly speaking, doesn't have a tribe. He has two tribes. So you see that played out in Manasseh and Ephraim. So how are we going to see verses 22 to 26 fulfilled in, through Joseph when his tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim. Interestingly, this goes for the other tribes as well. It, the commentators find it quite hard to, to necessarily pinpoint, you know, raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels, or Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea, shall become a haven for ships, and his brother shall be at Sidon. You know, what does that really look like? So... Yeah, I don't know. It kind of feels like it starts to become a little bit difficult to sort of say anything too helpful. Like I say, Joseph se Jacob seems to have reflected more on what Joseph has done as a result of bringing them there. There's not doesn't feel like there's too much talk of the future complete, compared to Judah. So, yeah, that's kind of where I'm sitting yeah Caroline Yeah, I think it's just frustrating when you look at the commentators and you think they're not very forthcoming in this. They just sort of, you kind of think, oh, I think I've got something that works, but it's nice to have their support just to push you on a little bit. Uh, Michael.
Sorry, can you speak up a little bit? Yeah, so just to repeat that, or have a go at repeating that for recording. Um, yeah, so at the end of Genesis 50, 25 to 26, you have Joseph asking um, his brothers, we to assume, to take his bones when they leave Egypt. It's not until you get to Joshua 24 that that's fulfilled. But then in Joshua 24... The people have entered the land. A lot's happened, but the people have now entered the land. The land's there, and Joseph is buried. Um, so he is going to have to wait a long time. A lot happens. Uh, and the nice thing about the Exodus as well, it gets mentioned, doesn't it, that Joseph's bones are carried with the um, Israelites as they escape. Okay, let's leave it there. We are going to share in the Lord's Supper in a moment. But before we do, let's sing, Behold the Lamb who bears our sins away.